Well, last week, if you recall, Pastor Allen walked us through Genesis chapter 27. And as he did, he shared with us how God uses dysfunctional people to accomplish his will. And that's good news for all of us, not because we're all dysfunctional, but because we don't have to be perfect in order for God to accept us and to use us. We only need to be willing vessels who are fully committed to him. And so this week, I've been given the privilege to continue our journey into chapter 28. And as I prayerfully read through and considered this chapter, it became apparent to me that although the events we're going to examine took place thousands of years ago, they remain relevant for us today. And that's because God's word is unchanging truth that never becomes obsolete. Truth is truth, no matter how old it is. And the Bible has been around a long time. So long, in fact, that it's worn out its welcome, not only with the culture, and we should expect that, but also sadly among many in the church who not only neglect it, but also choose to suppress it or invalidate portions of it, thereby recreating their own version of truth. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. You see, there's a right way and a wrong way to approach just about anything in this life. And the way we approach God's word matters. And it matters because we must seek to align our lives with the truth of God's word, not seek to align God's word with the truth of our lives. And the former leads to blessing, but the latter leads to ruin. Isaiah declared, the word of our God stands forever. And that's why it's important for us as followers of Jesus to learn from those who have gone before us. People like Abraham and like Isaac and like Jacob. And not only so we don't repeat their mistakes, but even more importantly, so that we can learn better who God is and what he requires from his followers. And that's certainly true of our study today. Now, if you recall from last week, dysfunction in the household of Isaac had reached new levels as we saw Rebecca organize and direct a conspiracy of deception against her own husband in order to rob from one son to give to the other. And if that weren't enough, Jacob is now forced to flee his own home in response to his brother Esau's pledge to assassinate him. Things really couldn't get much worse. However, there is good news. Because as we transition today from chapter 27 to chapter 28, we're going to see a much-needed shift in the landscape as God directly intervenes in order to move his predetermined plan forward. So as we examine God's word together today, I've entitled my message, Stairway to Heaven. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the unique opportunity you've blessed me with to unpack your word today to your people. Lord, speak through my words. Anoint me for the proclamation of your holy word today. And I pray it would fall on listening and obedient ears. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, as we open this chapter, we see Isaac summon Jacob in order to address two urgent matters. And the first is of practical significance, and the second is of spiritual significance, and both are important. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 28, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation today. So Isaac called for Jacob, blessed him, and said, You must not marry any of these Canaanite women. Instead, go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your grandfather Bethuel, and marry one of your uncle Laban's daughters. Now, perhaps this is the first time in a long time that mom and dad agreed on anything. At the very end of the previous chapter, following Rebecca's conspiracy of deception, she appeared irritated and told Isaac she was tired of the local Hittite women, and she would rather die than see Jacob marry one of them. So it appears Isaac and Rebekah were united in their conviction that Jacob was not to marry outside the faith. Way back in chapter 24, we saw that Abraham understood this principle, which is why he sent a delegate all the way back to his homeland to seek a wife for Isaac from among his relatives. And so Isaac and Rebekah were now determined to do likewise. And they were right to do so. Because if Jacob was ever to carry out his God-ordained destiny as a child of promise, he would need a like-minded wife committed to the purposes of God. After all, the blessings of all the nations of the world were at stake. You see, that's why interfaith marriages are not biblical, or marriages where one spouse is a believer and the other spouse is not. Because the unbelieving spouse will not only place the believing spouse in spiritual jeopardy, but they will always interfere with and hinder the purposes of God for the family, whether intended or not. And Paul emphasized this principle when he wrote, Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? That means if you're currently single and would like to be married, but you haven't found that special someone yet, let me urge you to ignore the cultural values and principles for how to seek a compatible spouse and instead follow the directions provided by the Lord through the Apostle Paul. In other words, when seeking a spouse, look far beyond external presentation and make certain there's a solid foundation a foundation that's built upon the solid rock of Christ Jesus. Why? Because if you can find someone that loves the Lord above all, then you'll find someone that already has their life priorities in the proper order. And if Jesus is number one in their life, then you'll be more than satisfied in the long run coming in second. The most important thing a husband and wife will ever share together is their allegiance to God. And Isaac and Rebekah knew that. Let's pick it up in verse 3 as Isaac continues with Jacob. May God Almighty bless you and give you many children, and may your descendants multiply and become many nations. May God pass on to you and your descendants the blessings he promised to Abraham. May you own this land where you are now living as a foreigner, 
for God gave this land to Abraham. Now, it's important to understand that these verbal blessings pronounced by Jacob, I'm sorry, pronounced by Isaac, were not just kind words or wishful thinking. To the contrary, they're words infused with divine power that in some mysterious way order these blessings from the spiritual realm. And that's because verbal blessings are vehicles of supernatural power for good that carry on from generation to generation. And that's why in the previous chapter, when Isaac learned that he was tricked by Rebekah and Jacob, he was powerless to reverse or rescind the blessings he had already spoken over Jacob. The blessings spoken over Jacob, whether intended or not, had to stand because once spoken, they were put into motion in the spiritual realm. And so much of what we do and say in this physical world has a direct impact in the heavenlies. And that's why we all need to be careful and calculated with the words we direct towards ourselves and towards others, especially children, because our words produce a response in the spirit realm. After all, isn't that what prayer is? We pray in the physical realm, hoping and expecting that there'll be a response in the spiritual realm. That means we too have power to speak blessings or curses over people, whether we intend it or not. And like blessings, curses can plague a family line for generations until they're identified and broken in Jesus' name. The words we speak in this life matter. So be intentional to speak blessings over people, even your enemies. Verse 5. So Jacob, so Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to stay with his uncle Laban, his mother's brother. Now, in spite of his faults, Jacob was obedient to his parents and left without delay for two reasons. One, to find a wife, and secondly, to avoid his brother Esau. Now, I imagine leaving home had to be difficult for Jacob, given the fact that he was deeply attached to his mother, Rebecca, And he was probably more comfortable at home than he was outdoors. Home was like a security blanket for Jacob. And the thought of leaving the protection of his parents and his home to journey 500 miles through the wilderness alone, where he probably lacked outdoor skills, must have been fearful and intimidating. But not only for him, but for his parents as well. But to their credit, Isaac and Rebekah desired and acted upon what was best for Jacob in his future rather than what was best for them. In fact, little did Rebekah know that once Jacob left home, she would no longer ever see her favorite son again. You see, as parents... Sometimes we can be tempted to cling to our children in order to satisfy our own insecurities rather than equip them and release them into the world in order to discover and live out the life God has planned for them. And when we do that, when we cling to them or try to convince them to pursue our plan for their life rather than God's, we can become an obstacle that gets in the way and interferes with God's purposes. 
You see, the truth is, our children don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord. David wrote in Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. And that includes our kids. He's loaned them to us for a short time to love them and to nurture them into God-fearing and fruit-bearing kingdom citizens. And our role is to help them discover who God created them to be, not who we think they should be. Now, that being said, there are no guarantees because at the end of the day, each of our kids must stand on their own two feet and make a decision as to which king and which kingdom they're going to serve. And sometimes, in spite of our best efforts, they don't always choose wisely. And as we pick up our story in verse 6, no one understood that better than Isaac and Rebekah. Esau knew that his father Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram to find a wife. And that he had warned Jacob, you must not marry a Canaanite woman. He also knew that Jacob had obeyed his parents and gone to Padam Aram. It was now very clear to Esau that his father did not like the local Canaanite women. So Esau visited his uncle Ishmael's family and married one of Ishmael's daughters in addition to the wives he already had. Jacob and Esau, although they emerged from the same womb at virtually the same time, were moving in completely different life directions. Jacob was traveling the pathway to blessing. Esau was drifting on a road to nowhere. Jacob, although still deceitful and selfish, was at least open to spiritual things. Esau was spiritually unresponsive. Jacob would become a nation that would bless all the other nations of the world. Esau would become a nation that would prove to be a thorn in Israel's side. Now, there seems to be some differing opinions among scholars whether Esau was acting in defiance of his parents by going back to the household of Ishmael for another wife or trying to win back their approval by avoiding the local women. Although his motive isn't clear, what is clear is that Esau still married into a family that God clearly rejected. So while Esau went searching for yet another wife, Jacob's world was about to be turned upside down. Verse 10. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stop there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. And as he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from heaven to earth. And he saw the angels of God going up and down on the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord your God, the God of your grandfather Abraham, the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you, and I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. 
One day I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Now, up to this point, although Jacob was open to spiritual realities, he was really living off the faith of his parents. Everything he knew about God was passed down from his grandfather Abraham to his father Isaac. Remember, there were no scriptures yet. And nothing in Jacob's past would indicate that he had any kind of relationship with God whatsoever. In fact, this appears to be his first personal encounter with God. And as a result, it would prove to be life-changing. A testimony that encounters with God are something we all need, whether dramatic or subtle. Jacob had a dream, but it was more than a dream. It was an encounter. And it was an encounter so remarkable that he would be changed forever. And although God had much more work to do preparing Jacob in order to fill, fulfill his God-ordained purpose, as we'll see in the chapters ahead, his encounter with God became a launching point for something great. Because Jacob's faith shifted from something his parents owned to something he now owned. From this moment forward, the God of Abraham and Isaac became the God of Jacob as well. And this encounter revealed so much more because Jacob now understood through this personal experience that God is a God who sees and he's a God who speaks and a God who reveals and he's a personal God and he promises and he has a plan and he blesses and he protects and he provides a future and he will never abandon those who belong to him. And not only that, Jacob also learned, among other things, that there's a heaven, that it's accessible, and God has at his command a vast army of angels prepared to accomplish his will. And I believe God still communicates to his people through dreams and visions today. I know people personally who have had visions so dramatic, like Jacob's, that have profoundly changed their lives forever. In fact, I'll bet some of you listening today have had dreams that you know came from God. In fact, the scriptures are filled with examples in both the Old and the New Testaments. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul was taken to heaven in some kind of a vision and he heard things he wasn't permitted to tell. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen saw a vision of Jesus as he was being martyred. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter had a vision and he saw heaven open. In fact, the entire book of Revelation came to John by way of a vision. We live in a supernatural world and our God is a supernatural God who speaks. After all, isn't that part of what separates him from the false gods of world religions? In fact, God is not only alive, but he desires to interact with and commune with his followers. He's a personal God who desires for us to invest time cultivating a love relationship with him. But know this, not all God encounters are dramatic. In fact, most are subtle, 
like a gentle rain or a quiet whisper. In fact, we're never more than one open Bible away from an encounter with God. Let's see how Jacob responds in his dream. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. Have you ever awakened from a bad dream and then became overwhelmed with a great sense of relief or joy when you realized that it was nothing more than a bad dream? Well, I imagine Jacob experienced great joy when he realized it was a real dream because he was visited by the living God during the night. And then something interesting occurred to Jacob, perhaps something he'd never considered before. He realized that God was there with him the whole time, but he had failed to notice. And I wonder how many times we miss God because we're simply not aware of his presence, because we're distracted or we're too busy or we're not taking time to look for him. We live in a noisy world. In fact, it's never been noisier than it is right now. And the truth is, we would do better as followers of Jesus to slow down and strategically cultivate more silence and solitude in our lives. Why? Because silence and solitude are pathways to hearing from God. Silence is simply escaping from noise And solitude is escaping from people. We need both. And I say strategically because it's something we must plan for. There must be intentionality. Because developing an intimate love relationship with our Savior never happens haphazardly. Look, Jesus did this. In fact, Luke reported in chapter 5 of his gospel that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Although he was deeply invested in the 12 and ministered to the crowds, he often sought isolation away from others. Why? Because silence and solitude formed the environment he needed in order to hear from and connect with his father. That's why we all need sacred places where we can escape from noise and people to be alone, not only with our thoughts, but alone with God. Because we can't hear from him if we're always talking or listening or watching something else. Jacob continues in verse 17. But he, Jacob, was also afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. It's none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. Jacob was exposed to something extraordinary, and he knew it. A stairway that connected heaven and earth, something that had been missing since the fall of Adam in the garden. And although he marveled at it, he never could have understood its ultimate significance, especially who that stairway represented. In John chapter 1, Jesus was in the early stages of his ministry and in the process of selecting his disciples. And Philip became immediately convinced that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And Nathanael quickly labeled Jesus as the Son of God. And Jesus responded to them by saying this, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man the one who is the stairway 
between heaven and earth. Thousands of years later, Jesus identified as Jacob's stairway to heaven. What Jacob saw in his dream was merely a precursor to something much, much bigger. And yet another example of how the Old Testament and all of its nerve endings are woven with divine precision into the New Testament. Jesus would go on to say, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. You see, during his ministry here on earth, Jesus often referred to the Old Testament scriptures. He did so over 75 times that we know of. And I hear people say all the time, oh, that's just Old Testament, as though it no longer matters. Well, don't believe that lie, because Jesus said it did matter. Why? Because the Old Testament scriptures are about him. And we can no, long, no more discard the truth of the Old Testament than we can discard Jesus himself. Jesus is the champion and the central figure of all Scripture, not just the New Testament. Let's finish up. Verse 18. The next morning, Jacob got up very early. He took the stone he had rested his head against, and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it, and he named that place Bethel, which means house of God. Then Jacob made this vow. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I will return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God. And I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. This was Jacob's conversion experience. Although the cross wouldn't emerge for centuries, he chose this day whom he would serve. This was his liberation day. And the day his allegiance shifted from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God. He no longer only knew God by description only. He was now acquainted with him personally. You see, too often we tend to think of salvation as a legal transaction rather than a relationship to be pursued, pursued and nurtured at all costs. I hand God my sinner's prayer and he hands back to me the keys of the kingdom. Or the key to eternal life is acquired through head knowledge. So now God must let me in because I know all the answers. The problem is Jesus didn't talk about salvation or eternal life that way because heaven and eternal life are much more than an eternal pleasure destination. It's actually designed to be a place where we'll enjoy the unceasing and overwhelming presence of God forevermore. In fact, it'll be the continuation of a love relationship that begins in this life. Jesus put it this way while praying to his father. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, eternal life is about knowing God. So much so that Jesus likens it to a marriage relationship. He's the bridegroom and the church is his bride. And here's the question each of us should ask ourselves. 
Am I living my Christian life today based upon facts I know about Jesus? Or am I striving to live in loving relationship with Jesus? There's a big difference. Well, although it would take some refining over many years, and there would be many hard lessons to learn along the way, Jacob repented and changed course and was now committed to living his life from that morning forward based upon his new relationship with the living God. So what about you? Have you made that commitment like Jacob did? This Jesus who revealed himself to Jacob way back in Genesis is the stairway to heaven. In fact, he's the only stairway to heaven. And he says to you, if you thirst, come to me and drink. If you're hungry, come to me and eat. If you're weary, come to me and find rest for your soul. If you don't know him, but you're ready to, I would encourage you, if you're here today, to visit our prayer room right across the lobby following our service and tell the folks in there. However, if you're watching from a remote location and you're ready, then repent and turn from your sin and ask God to save you. Believe that Jesus is the forgiving king and he is the stairway to heaven. And then commit yourself to love him and to serve him. And then join a local church that teaches God God's word because you're going to need help along the way. Or perhaps you're here and, you, and you've made that commitment, but you've been neglecting to cultivate and pursue a deep love relationship with him. To you, Jesus says this, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. That's his invitation to you. And as I end today, rather than close in a, in a typical prayer, like Isaac, let me pray a prayer of blessing over each of you. In Jesus' name, I declare God's incredible blessings over your life, including your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. May you always know his sweet, tender affections for you. May you seek after him above all else, and may he provide all of your needs in Christ Jesus. May you be agents of his grace and mercy toward others. And may you bear much kingdom fruit as you live out his will for your life. May he always be your strong tower in times of trouble. And may your lamps be trimmed with oil as you await his glorious coming. And I pray these blessings and more will be yours from generation to generation. In Jesus' name, amen.